kingdom of heaven, and this week we're going to talk about blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're going to be having this as a two-part message, and this week we're going to talk about what sin is, uh, some of of the, the biblical references of where it talks about repentance, and next week we're going to talk about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow as seen in 1 Corinthians. So when you look at this, this whole thing of sin, undoubtedly all of us know that we should repent of sin. That's like a, hello, we're supposed to repent of sin, but wouldn't it be great if there was a detector like at the airports where you'd walk through this detector and you could tell if your repentance was real or if it was counterfeit. If it was the real thing or if it was counterfeit because... I can give you story after story of people who have supposedly repented, but they didn't. They didn't. And we know those foxhole um, acceptance of Christ is, if you get me out of this, I'll do A, B, C, and D. And far more often than not, they don't. And I had a guy call me when uh, my son was going through cancer. He was just one of his first first, uh, treatments. And he called me, and he, he had what we'd all call a scare. He had a scare. And he went to the doctor, and they said, I don't know, we've got to test this. This doesn't look good. You may have cancer of some sort. And he was weeping on the phone. And it came out that everything is fine. And his life has not changed one scratch. But he was scared to death, and he'll do whatever he can. So when you, you look at repentance... Is it real, or is it counterfeit? Have you ever noticed in our culture how they like to embrace entertainment and and pursue pleasures at all costs? In fact, you could have most of your life watching the news, except for the stuff that they have to give. They avoid sorrow and pain. They'll, They'll give it to you if they have to, but they'll even end broadcasts by giving something that's humorous that you can kind of take with you. And what I always found was interesting with with newscasts and stuff is you could have, and it's nothing against these people at all. Um, One one comes to mind, Farrah Fawcett. By any standards, she was beautiful. She was absolutely beautiful, but she got cancer. And I, I made a mental note, never once did they show her at all with cancer. They would always talk about her cancer, and they would show a picture of her in her heydays when she was just gorgeous. And I went, they don't want to show that side. They don't want to show the pain and the sorrow of what it looks like when you are ravaged with cancer. So they talked about her, but never once did I see them put any kind of a picture where she was physically deteriorating. That's kind of our cultures. We want to uh, shield ourselves from that. The mantra of many today is something like this. Blessed are those who laugh their way through life. They will do, some of us will do almost anything to stifle our sadness and turn away from tears. Yet if we're honest, we have to admit that we sometimes feel like Proverbs 14, where it says, even in laughter, the heart may ache and joy may end in grief. There's an old song that you probably have heard before. It goes like this. What's the use of worrying? It never was worthwhile. So pack up your troubles in your old kit bag 
smile, smile, smile. Yeah. There's a poem that reads, I walked a mile with pleasure and she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and not a word, said she, but all oh, the things I learned when sorrow walked with me. So the passage we're looking at today is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this parable, this statement could be put kind of like this, and you're going to kind of recoil when you hear this. It could be put like this. Happy are the unhappy, or the gladness of sadness. Or you could say, God applauds you when you're in agony. And those are not attractive statements in our culture. Not at all. And as we've been learning, God is much more concerned with our character than he is with our temporary conditions. The beatitude, this one, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, flows out of the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is the opposite of self-sufficiency. We'll kind of start there, and as we go further and further on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll start at the first one and say, okay, it means this. We'll go to the second one, it means this. We'll kind of give a, a, a bullet point of what that means. Poor in spirit is the opposite of pride. It is, it is knowing our absolute humility before a, a holy God that we have nothing to offer. That is what the whole concept of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, next week is going to be talking about repentance. This week, as you can see from your outline, it's going to be talking about the different ways that we can mourn, uh, or, or <clears throat> how we can mourn, or how the beatitude can be lived out. And it's going to be talking about several different kinds. The, before I get there, though, I want to talk about that word mourn just briefly. The word mourn can be translated as the strongest possible word for mourning. It means to grieve or wail as when a loved one dies. It is deep sorrow that causes the soul to ache and the heart to break. It's not necessarily a single tear going down your cheek. It is where you really ache for what has happened. That is the word that's being used here for the word mourn. It's not just kind of I feel kind of sad or I feel kind of low. It's, it's much more than that. And in Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. So I'd like to suggest this sermon that there are four different areas where this verse can be played out. The first one is lament the losses in your life. Just lament the losses in your life because it is a really a true deal. I had a funeral here. What day was it? It was last Monday, Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? I don't remember. It was Tuesday. It started to run together. It was Tuesday. And I called him my uncle. He wasn't my uncle. He married my first cousin. But he was close enough to the family that he was considered an uncle. And Sal and I were just talking here the other day that when they had the Farmer's Day Parade, we were right over there, one of the members of the family came to me and they said, yeah, Morris, Morris is really sick. He's got cancer and we don't think he's going to live 
through August. And I go, whoa, really? So we kept track of that, and I've been over to their place numerous times, and we've seen that deterioration and the losses in their life, and it is, I, I, I explain it like you've got two pieces of paper that are glued together, and you slowly just tear them apart. And many of you have had those losses in your life. It's, it's Morris and Irene Beld. And Morris wanted her to stand, sit by her bed and hold his hand. But that only could go so long, and then she couldn't hold his hand anymore because he was agitated or he'd move around. And slowly they were pulled apart. They used to do everything together, and then they'd have coffee together, and then she sat at his bed together, and then she could only sit, sit a little way away from his bed together. And then she got so tired she had to to back off and let other caretakers take it, and I could see this lamenting of the loss in her life. It was slowly getting tore away, and you get she, she did, like other people I have seen, finally she got to the point, she says, I want the Lord to take him. It's time. It was so difficult to watch. <clears throat> so, lamenting the losses in your life, that can be health issues or a concern for the future. And certainly many of you, if you haven't had it this week, you certainly had it in the past where you've had health issue scares or you've had a concern for the future. What's that going to look like? Lamenting losses in your life can be ruptures in relationships that are just kind of gnawing at you. You used to have a relationship that is no longer there. <clears throat> Psalm 6, verse 6 says, I am worn out with groaning all night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. That was David talking. Lamenting some of the losses in his life was the relationship he had with Absalom. And then it went one step further, lamenting those losses. It was where Absalom died and how he lamented over Absalom dying or, or Abraham mourned for his wife, Sarah. They'd been married and it says that he wept for her. And we see Jesus weeping for Lazarus. And I am fully aware, the age group that we have here, this next one doesn't necessarily apply, but it can apply in your family, it can apply in your extended family or with friends, is maybe you're weeping because you want to have a child. And it's not happening. And for those of you that are moms in here, you know how important that is or maybe you even had to wait for longer than you thought before you could have children. And that is a real issue, and you're waiting and your heart is breaking. And that's like with Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. It says, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and my grief. And we know the rest of the story that she had Samuel and she had other children as well. But initially, she was lamenting the losses in her life. And I want to I just take a, a, a slight little corner here and ask a question. Is You can look at human sorrow in one way that is entirely different. And I want you to do this on this one. Is what actually caused you to become a Christian? Was it because you were sorrowful and lamenting your spiritual condition? Or you go, oh, it seemed like the thing to do. It wasn't that big a deal. Or is that something that still is in your memory that you became a Christian 
because you felt personal desperation or a sense of being at the end of your resources and there was nowhere else to turn. The, par the uh, Beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And there is something about mourning for your sins where you actually come before the throne of grace and you receive salvation. That is being comforted in your mourning. And it's just a question that we kind of throw out for all of us, me included, is what, what caused you to become a Christian? Were you following the crowd? Or did you have a deep and sincere desperation that you had nothing in and of yourself and you knew that I'm going to take this because if I don't, I'm going to be lost? There's a second way that we can have the Beatitudes be lived out. The second, the second one is mourn for the evils of this world. Mourn for the evils of this world. There was a guy in England by the name of Lord Shaftesbury. Lord Shaftesbury. He was an English social reformer, and he probably did more to improve the lives of normal men and women in England in the last century than any person, and yet his career as a social reformer began quite simply. One day, as a boy, when he was going along the streets of Harrow, he met a pauper's funeral. The body of the poor man had been placed in a handmade coffin, shoddy and unembellished, and it was being pushed through the street on a hand-drawn cart. The men who accompanied it were apparently drunk. As they drove, as they wove their way along the streets, they sang their risque drinking songs and told lewd stories. Their way up a hill to the graveyard, they made their way up the hill to the graveyard, and as they went up the hill, the coffin slid off the cart and broke open. The scene that followed was hilarious to the drunken companions. It was disgusting to some onlookers. But to Shaftesbury, it seemed an evil that called for the deepest sorrow. He said to himself, when I grow up, I'm going to use my life to see that such things will not happen again. And he was known as one of England's greatest social reformers. Why? Because he had a sorrow for the evils of this world. And the church should not stand above, removed, or detached from the sorrows of this world. We should be against actively opposed to abortion. I'll say it loud and clear from here. We should be absolutely opposed to abortion. We should be opposed to the breakdown of the family and crime and drugs. We should have a concern for world missions and evangelism, and I thank God for Fredeen that she's going to Zimbabwe, and I've said it before, she is wired as a missionary, and we need to support her and let her go and do her thing. When I was in a previous church, <clears throat> I still remember the, I was associate pastor at the time, and the lead pastor went, and he was getting certified as a biblical counselor, and that doesn't sound like very much. It sounds like a really thin piece of paper, and it's not that big a deal. It was a really steep hill, let me tell you. So he gets certified as a biblical counselor, and he came in to me, and he said he wanted me and the other associate to get certified as a biblical counselor, and we did. It probably took a year and a half of work, and it, it was just a, a steep hill. Anyway, we'd up, we went up there, and... We, we, we had at least three certified biblical counselors in the church, and one day the, the pastor comes in my office, and he says, Ken, 
He says, I'd like you to be the director of the biblical counseling ministry at this church. And I says, whoa. I says, wait a minute. I says, do you mean the currently non-existent biblical counseling ministry? He goes, that's the one. And I says, okay. Okay, so then I got further training, and we did went through the educational hoops. But here's my point. That particular program of biblical counseling brought more, and I'm not saying hundreds, I'm saying maybe a dozen. But of all the new people that came in the church over months and years, biblical counseling brought in more people than any other ministry. You can have a block party that has a potluck. You can have a missions day. You can have this day, and you can invite people in. And whether we did or we didn't, the point is, more people came because the church cared about what was going on in their individual lives. And you could say, rightly, you'd say, well, pastor, why did they come to church? Didn't they have another church? If they did, we said, you can go to the other church. But if we're going to give you free counseling, you have to go to church. And you have to take notes, and we're going to talk about those notes when we come to our next session. So if you have your own church, that's fine. Go ahead, go to your own church. But many of them didn't, as you can well imagine. And they said, then you're going to come here. And you're going to sit with somebody so you're not a loner, you're not in an island, but you're going to come here. And because of that sorrow for the world, that lamenting for the evils of this world and the biblical counseling ministry, people came. And they were here, and they heard the gospel. Now, I have no idea how many accepted Christ because of that, but really that's not my concern. What we need to, to do is be habitual about giving out the salvation story, and that's the Holy Spirit's problem. He's going to change the hearts and minds of people. That's not my problem. So we need to mourn over the evils of this world. Third, we need to cry over the condition of others. Jesus wants us to look around and cry about the conditions of Christians and the state of those who don't yet know Christ. So on the one hand, we are told in Hebrews 3 that we are to encourage others. We're to encourage each other. Scripture says that. It says, uh, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We also need to be teaching with tears and exhorting our brothers and sisters with emotion to become the, the, all that God wants them to be. That's on the one hand, is we are to encourage one another. On the other hand, there was, do you know, there was no time in Scripture, there is no writing in Scripture where it's, it tells of Jesus laughing. Not one time. Two times it talks about him weeping. One of them was the death of Lazarus, as I mentioned earlier, and the other time was on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered the city and he wept over it. And I read the passage this morning, and he was looking at the city, and he says, if only you would know what is going to be happening to this city in the years to come. And he wept over the city. And it is interesting, when you read that passage, I've referred to you many times about when Sal and I went to to Israel and the different things that we saw. And in fact, I just mentioned Sal here just a day or two ago, is we were going through a tunnel right before you get to Jerusalem, and no doubt the guide that was with us had done this before because he had it timed exquisitely. Is he's talking about Jesus, and Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and then he said the words, and when Jesus crested the hill, this is what he'd see, and that 
right then we exited the tunnel, and there's Jerusalem. He went, whoa, man. And that is the passage we have here, is Jesus comes and he sees the city and all of its grandeur and all of its beauty, but he knows in the years to come what is going to be happening, and it's not pretty. Jesus is crying over the conditions of others, and when it says that, that uses that word wept, it means to burst into tears, to weep out loud, to sob deeply. It's more than just a tear going down his neck. We see in Mark 5 where there were family members who were crying over the death of their 12-year-old daughter, and Jesus came and said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, and they laughed at him to scorn. But they were weeping and wailing for this young lady. Jesus was not weeping when he saw Jerusalem because he was going to suffer and die. He was wailing loudly for the loss that he saw to this world because of sin. There is a story about John Knox. He constantly carried the burden of Scotland in prayer. And night after night, he prayed on the wooden floor of his house. And when his wife pleaded with him to get some sleep, he answered, how can I sleep when my land is not saved? He would also say repeatedly, give me Scotland or I die. What about you and me? When was the last time that your heart broke for anything? I mean, for anything. When was the last time you cried for Christians and, wa and wailed for the wayward? We've talked about the losses in your life. We've talked about mourning for the evils of this world. We talk about crying over the condition of others. And the fourth one is be sorrowful about your sins. It's the recognition of your total bankruptcy. And I am not going to spend very long on this because this is probably the focal point of my, my message next week, is being sorrowful about our own sins. <clears throat> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through that when I'm, I'm going to talk now about repentance in the Old Testament. Repentance in the Old Testament, we can talk about the doctrine of repentance if we wanted to, but it was not started in the New Testament. Repentance, calling people to repentance, was started in the, New, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God himself is grieved over the failure of his own people to repent. And he'd, asked, he'd issued many passionate calls for them to repent and turn back to him. And we see this in Isaiah 55. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. A couple more passages. Jeremiah 35. Again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Reading, the reason I'm reading these is because repentance was started in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament thing. It is an Old Testament thing. Ezekiel 18. Therefore, O house of Israel... I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
repent and live. So I want to ask you, I had to do a paper one time on, on repentance, and frankly, it was one of the hardest papers I've ever had to do. But it, it was just, it's just difficult because it took a, a, a topic that went from cover to cover in Scripture, and you kind of put it into something that's readable. But there was, a, there was a, a portion of this paper that said, what did repentance look like in the Old Testament? What did it look like? Well, there's one example in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, it says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They did that for a quarter of a day. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law and the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in the confession and standing, worshiping the Lord their God for a quarter of a day just confessing their sins, another quarter of the day worshiping their God. From where I stand, that's a long time. That's a whole long time. Another one was sitting in the dust, wearing sackcloth and ashes. Another Old Testament um, method of repentance was pouring water out. You only see that once or twice. Another one was in Jonah. That was a particularly good one. Just a second. Jonah. Jonah is told, obviously, to go to the city of Nineveh and to proclaim that the city of Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days if they do not repent. And, of course, Jonah doesn't want to go, and we know the whole large fish that swallowed him and all this. But the long and short of it is, in Jonah 3, he does go. So he goes and he proclaims the word that the Lord gave to him, and the to, to, the, to the city of Nineveh, and they said that the city of Nineveh was a three days journey, is how big that city was. So we're talking a lot of people. Here's the point that I wanna, I'm going to make. By decree of the king and his nobles of Nineveh, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. This is, this is a sign of repentance. They're not even letting cattle eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Those are four particularly good ways is fasting, sackcloth and ashes, pouring out water, and fasting and being garbed in sackcloth, even for animals. That were, those were Old Testament signs. Each of these was a sign of loathing of sin, symbolizing deep grief, and appeal for mercy, showing utter dependence on the Lord. It symbolized unworthiness, Sorrow over sin and destruction of the arrogant. Repentance in the Old Testament always referred to a change of one's mind. It always re referred to a change of purpose, and it always referred to a change of conduct. It describes a person who turns around. So 
I want to I ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. It's not something I want you to answer. I just want you to chew on this. Mourning today is not the same. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. You don't have to weep and wail like they did in the past. Part of that was a cultural thing. Mourning today takes place in different ways, but it's still acceptable and normal to mourn, is it not? Even though it is different, have we ever, ever had a deep sorrow for sin? Ever. At any time. In our whole life. I mean, I realize that we do it different than what we did then. That's fine. The question is, have we, me and you, have we ever had a deep sorrow for sin? Ever. And I find that, for the most part, it is looked at, sin is looked at as just a mistake. It's a boo-boo. Well, I just kind of made an error. It's glossed over and it's not a particularly big deal. It is diminished, it is minimized, it is, it is hid, it is concealed, it is whatever, but it is not, hardly ever, do people actually have any level of sorrow over sin. I mean, any level. We're not talking about weeping and wailing, we're just talking about even kind of a, a deep regret. In the New Testament, there's a host of people that talked about repentance. One of them was John the Baptist, and he said the exact same thing that Jesus said in, in about a chapter later, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Next week, I'm probably going to talk about the prodigal son and that whole story. We don't have enough time to, to, do, to do that today, but we will get to it. Repentance was a significant part of Peter's teaching. He had Acts 2, and he had four other places. We had like five places in Scripture where he talked about repentance. And 2 Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul, he taught repentance to both the Jews and the Gentiles in at least seven places. Romans 2 is just one of them. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Repentance is for unbelievers, and repentance is for believers. You say, it's for believers? Absolutely. You can look at Job 42. Or you can look at the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is for unbelievers, and it is for believers. So, now I'm to the end of our outline. And I could have elaborated on some of that, but frankly, I think you get the point. So what? You say, okay, the Bible talks about repentance. You, you convince me. You know, and I, you convince me that we don't sorrow much for it, and we convince me that Jesus talked about it, and Peter and Paul, and a whole bunch of people talked about it. Okay, so what? Well, the so what part of it is... The Beatitudes say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And in part, that is a mourning for the sin that we have, that we have performed, and it's having a sorrow before God, because when we repent and we mourn over sin, then we are forgiven and we are comforted. 
That is, that is what this particular beatitude means in large part. Repentance is realizing that I have a problem in my life and that I can't fix it and God is not pleased with it. Repentance is realizing that I've done something, that I am doing something, that I'm hurting my relationship with my heavenly Father. Repentance is mourning over the sin in my life. Let me say it this way. If there is sin in your life and you're not concerned about it, you should be. If you're a Christian and you have sin and you feel guilty about it, that's a good thing. That means the Holy Spirit is working in your life and is giving you a measure of guilt, calling you to repentance. If you don't feel guilty about it, you should be concerned. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sinfulness. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to make us feel guilty when we've done something wrong. And when we feel guilty because we've done something wrong, good. That means the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and he's doing his job. And we are sensitive enough to listen. When we sin, we ought to feel sorry about it. When we sin, we ought to feel guilty. When we sin, we ought to feel sorrow. And when we mourn over sin, we ought to repent. We ought to come to God and ask for forgiveness. I'm going to close with this. There are people that are sinning right now intentionally. And I would ask you, what do you, what do you think about sin? What, what do you think about that? You say, oh, we're in church. I have to say, it's really bad. But yet we live oftentimes a whole nother way. So we may not have a wholesome hatred for sin, and this, but the sins that we hate most are the ones that we have been caught doing. The ones that we haven't been caught doing, well, we just kind of continue on with those. I want to tell you of a story of a wealthy man, and this will give you what I mean about this whole issue of tolerating sin. This wealthy man was interviewing prospects for the position of a chauffeur. And each of the candidates that he was questioning was asked the same question. How close to the edge of a cliff can you drive and still keep me safe? Well, the first one was certain that he could drive within six inches of the cliff and be absolutely safe. Well, the second one assured the prospective employer that he could drive with, with the outer tire right off the edge of the cliff and all would be well. Well, the third guy, he insisted he would stay as far from the cliff as possible, hugging the opposite wall. Who do you think got the job? The point is, there are people, when they see sin, and they know God hates sin, they go, okay, how close can I be to that sin, and I'm still okay? I want to be okay, but I don't want to get a long way away from it. I want to be, I want to be far enough away from it that God's okay, but I want to be close enough that I can feel its warmth, that I can kind of enjoy it. So how close do you think you can get to that sin and not get burned? And there's people that try it all the time. Instead of saying, sin is over there, and I'm going to get as 
far away from it as I possibly can so that it doesn't hurt me and it doesn't hurt my relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to have communion here in just a second. It's the first Sunday of the month. And there is every so often, I've kind of mentioned to you, and this isn't going to come out very often, because it doesn't happen very often, and that's a fact. You, you could send me all kinds of stuff, and, and I'm just going to crush your bubble and say probably the, virtually all of them I throw away. But every so often there is a comment that comes, comes along that makes it in my Bible. I've told you, not very many do, but my boy sent me one. It's not because my boy went in there. It's because of what the comment said and it has to do with sin and, and how our relationship with God. And it says this. He sent this to me several years ago. It says, spiritual prison is not living a life of sin. It is the point at which you look to God and say, leave me alone. And he removes his hand. Does that make you just choke up? You go, oh my word. Somebody says to God, leave me alone. And he goes, not a problem. I will. For all eternity, I will leave you alone. Oh man, that one made the cover of my Bible. Because it says so much in so few of words. We're going to have communion. And you know why we're going to have communion? Because Jesus Christ took sin so seriously, so incredibly seriously, that he was willing to go to the cross and die for you and I. There was nothing trivial or trite about sin in the eyes of Jesus Christ. He went in and suffered and died for the sin that you and I kind of wink at sometimes. I'll speak for myself, that I wink, oh, it's not so bad. Don't get all twisted and not about it. It's not that big a deal. We come to this, and we see the, the symbols of his, his blood and his body that was broken for us because Jesus Christ and God the Father took sin absolutely seriously. And that's what we need to do. If you'd have the ushers come on up, and I'm going to have the, the elements dispersed here in just a minute. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Think about that. That is what we're going to be passing out. And we're going to be doing this in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on what he did on the cross for us.
I read you just a second ago. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Who among us, who among us would ever sacrifice our lives for the sins of others when you did nothing wrong? Not at all. You did nothing wrong. He says, yeah, I'll do that. I'll go out there and I'll let them beat me and crucify me and all the stuff that they did just because you loved someone so much. And nobody would do that. You might do it for a friend, but you certainly wouldn't do it for somebody that was cursing your name. That's what Jesus Christ did. He took sin so seriously that he was willing to have his body broken in our stead. So as we eat together, remember what Jesus Christ did in our stead. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I mentioned earlier in my message that one of the things that society does is they like to shield us from things that are disconcerting or they'll always give a disclaimer and they say what we're about to show may not be appropriate for everyone because some people have sensitivities. And I get that. Having come from the business that I did in police work and others that have come from police work, let me tell you, that crucifixion would insult your sensitivities. 
It was nasty. It was brutal. It was in every way horrendous, and they would not have showed it on TV because they don't like to show that kind of stuff. But that's what Jesus Christ willingly endured for you and I. And make no mistake, he was a bloody mess. He, it would have been horrible what he went through. And he did it voluntarily for us. So when it says, 